Good morning. Uh, last time I, I was with you, if you remember, there was like a gale storm going across here and uh, everything was blowing in all directions. And uh, so I came prepared with my uh, notebook. Uh, hopefully my pages uh, will stay where they belong and I won't be uh, gathering my thoughts all over the deck this morning. Uh, that last song that we sang, by the way, beautifully um, dovetailed into the message this morning uh, because this is uh, a message from one of the Psalms that uh, addresses the theme of missions. And um, I tell you, as I studied this Psalm and, and read more about it, uh, this Psalm, which upon initial reading may sound a bit mysterious, not to say anything else, but as you learn more about it, uh, this um, psalm became actually one of my favorites. Now, I will admit to you, and you may hear it as I read it and wonder why it could crack my top ten in favorite psalms, but it's uh, my prayer this morning that after our time together that uh, this might perhaps just inch your way a little closer toward your top ten as well. I say that this psalm is a little mysterious. There's actually uh, kind of a little funny story related to this psalm. When I was in seminary, one of my Hebrew professors related the story that um, he was preaching this psalm in a, a country church in Oregon that was between pastors. So he was the uh, guest preacher that morning. And this church, as I said, was in uh, rural Oregon. And um, just before the sermon, this church had one of its uh, men, <coughs> pardon me, one of the men come to the pulpit and read the psalm. And <coughs> as he read the psalm, he had a rather interesting way of introducing it. And uh, what he did was something like this. I was asked to read Psalm 87 this morning. I read it last night, twice. Made no sense at all. I reread it again this morning. Didn't understand it, not even a lick. He then proceeded to read the Psalm and then looked up with sad eyes and said, See what I mean? <laughs> that was the introduction of this psalm for uh, Dr. Allen, and he had to um, somehow rescue it from this um, uh, poor, uh, poor gentleman that had to, to read this psalm. So I'm going to read the psalm for you today. And it's a short psalm, and upon the completion of this psalm, you may even say, I see what he meant. Uh, this is Psalm 87. It is a song, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. 
Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. See what he meant? Well, uh, let's, uh, let's dive in and... Uh, Hopefully, by the end of the morning, we'll understand this a little bit uh, better than we did before, uh, even if it's just a lick. Okay, so the psalm is uh, first uh, consists of three stanzas. Uh, again, keep in mind that these were songs that were sung. The first three stanzas uh, covers verses 1 to 3. And then it's divided by the word Selah. And then the next stanza covers verses 4 to 6. And again, there is the word Selah. And then the last stanza, a short stanza, just one verse. Now, the word Selah, Hebrew scholars tell us, was uh, probably a musical designation that was meant for the choir director. Uh, the word Selah meant uh, a, a musical interlude that was designed so that uh, the people could reflect and contemplate on that which was just sung. So it's, in a sense, the pause that refreshes. And so with that basic structure, let's dive into the first stanza, and we'll label the first stanza the gates of Zion. And so we see, as we uh, read these verses, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. Now, the city of Jerusalem was built on uh, a small mountain, and so the reference here is to the city of Jerusalem. In verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of of Zion. Now, Zion was God's affectionate nickname for the city of Jerusalem. We see, for example, in the writings of the prophets, uh, often the designation daughter of Zion. Well, that's the way it's translated in our English Bibles, but in Hebrew, it's just daughter Zion. God had a son, Exodus 4, verse 22, his name was Jacob, or Israel. And now we see God had a daughter, and that daughter was Zion, or Jerusalem. And it says that God loves the gates of Zion. And I thought, why would God have an apparent inordinate love for the gates of Zion. Well, as you probably know, the ancient Near Eastern cities, uh, there were walls of protection built around the cities, 
and the gates were the most vulnerable part of the city. So if an invading army was going to enter into the city, it would be the gates that would be the place that uh, that army would invade. And so in those days, there were all sorts of elaborate defenses built around the gates so that uh, there would be extra protection and there would be people atop the gates that would shoot down sharp things and pour down hot things to keep uh, invading armies at bay. But as you read this psalm, and especially as you look at the second stanza, uh, you get the impression that this psalm is really not a psalm of defense or protection. There's really not a military theme that is evident in this psalm. So you begin to reflect on the gates in a slightly different way. That is to say, the gates were there not only to keep the bad guys out, but the gates were there also to allow the good guys to come in. And as you read through this psalm, you get the idea that that was really the emphasis of this song as it was sung. And so it says, God loves the gates of Zion because the gates permitted those to enter in and to worship him. So after that uh, pause that refleshes, Selah, uh, we uh, enter into the second stanza. And that second stanza, we are introduced to the citizens of Zion. And we see this in verses 4, 5, and 6. And this is where the psalm becomes actually uh, a bit mysterious. Okay, let me read it again for you, this, uh, this second stanza. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. So the second stanza begins um, just a bit strangely, a little mysteriously. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Okay, let's just stop for a moment on Rahab. Now, if anything comes to mind at all when you hear the name Rahab, what probably comes to mind is the woman who lived on the wall of Jericho and who hid the Hebrew spies when they came to spy out the city. Now, it would be logical for you to think along those lines, but I'm here to tell you that if we go in that direction, we're going the wrong way. Now, in Hebrew, there are two different letters for the letter H. There's the hard H, Rahab, and I'm sorry about that, Bill. <laughs> and then there's the soft H, Rahab. So Rahab, the soft H, is the woman that lived on the wall at Jericho. But this is the hard H, Rahab, 
And are you ready for this? The word means dragon. Okay? That's helpful, isn't it? In understanding, right? So where, where do we go from here? Well, this word was often used in Hebrew poetry to describe Egypt. It was, may I say, a politically incorrect word to describe the nation of Israel. This dragon was a mythical dragon that was known as the dragon of chaos and confusion, and it was also one of the gods of the Egyptians. We see the same word, for example, uh, mentioned in uh, Psalm 89, just two psalms away. So basically, if in your study Bible you see by Rahab a note that says, or Egypt, that's how we got there. So God, in a sense, is, and the image here is, is beautiful, we see the image of God leaving his heavenly throne and mingling among the people who enter into the city to worship him. We see God making comments on the worshipers. And the comments that he makes is uh, a recognition of those who come from all over the known world who enter into the gates that God loves for the express purpose of meeting with him and declaring their worship in the temple. Now, you would expect among the worshipers that there were a good many Jews and Hebrews, and in fact, they were. But you may be surprised to discover that there were a number of Israel's ancient rivals and enemies that were also included in this apparent worship of the true God we see that there were Egyptians. But more than that, we see that there were Babylonians there. Shockingly, there were those from Philistia who were there. Seriously? There were Philippines that were gathering in the city of Jerusalem to worship the Philippines? These were the people who... Well, their history is evident, isn't it, in the Old Testament? They were the ones that executed Samson. They were the ones that murdered King Saul and Jonathan. Uh, Goliath, the giant, was a Philistine. Uh, they were the ones that, that captured the Ark of the Covenant. And yet here in Philistia, here they were. And how does God describe them? In verse 4, they know me. In addition to that, there were those from Tyre and Cush, or present-day uh, Ethiopia, and here they were, all entering in to the holy city, and there's God among them, registering them among the people who know me, declaring this one and that one is born there. Now, we get the idea as we read this psalm that our God was a God of the nations. Our God was the all-powerful God of gods. 
and it goes to the task of the Israelites to be a light to the world to declare the true God. That was the intent from the very beginning. A number of years ago, I was invited to participate in a missions conference uh, in a rather large church. And I had my little responsibility, but Sunday morning was given to the heavy hitter to preach that morning. It was not me. Uh, there was a missionary there who was uh, highly decorated. He wrote several books, and he was uh, a good brother and had worked hard for the Lord and uh, had a fruitful ministry, and he was the feature speaker that morning. And he opened his Bible in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, verses that may be familiar to many of us. It's called the Great Commission. And that's the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples to go on to the world and make disciples of all nations. And he read this portion and said, this is the beginning of world missions. And my ears perked up and all kind of alarms went off because, no, it wasn't. It wasn't suddenly that God slept through the Old Testament and, and then suddenly woke up and said, uh, duh, there's a whole lot of more people out there that need to be rescued. No, world missions doesn't begin in Matthew 28. World missions in the heart of God begins at the beginning. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are considered by Bible scholars to be a general prelude to the entire Bible. And then in, John, and then in Genesis chapter 12, God begins his personal relationship, developing a relationship with a man by the name of Abram. We later know him as Abraham. And he made a covenant, an agreement with Abraham. And he said that through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham took that seriously and began to follow God to a place where God was going to show him. And along the journey in that chapter, Abram stops between the cities of Bethel and Ai and builds an altar. And in verse 8, it says, There Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And that word called, translated in our English Bible, is really not the best Hebrew translation uh, from the Hebrew into English. When Martin Luther translated his uh, Old Testament into German, Martin Luther got it right when he said, Abram preached in the name of Yahweh. World missions begins at the beginning. And just as an aside, uh, I know there's another church close by that uh, may, may use a similar phrase, but um, although we're not the perfect church, and we're not because uh, first and foremost, I attend. But I say this with, I hope, godly pride that because of the generosity of you folks and in large part because of the generosity of the folks here at Two Mile, 
Last year, we were able to give 50% of our budget to missions, either close by or across the ocean waves. And that thrills me no end because that's a reflection of the heart of God. And so we uh, see this beautiful presentation here in the second stanza of this psalm where God sees people from all over the known world entering in through the gates of heaven and describes them as this one was born there. Now, if you're a Hebrew and you're singing this song, your ears perk up because you look around and you see these foreigners and you're prone to say, this one and that one? They weren't born here. And so you gently call God aside and you say, Lord, um, forgive me, but I, th I think you're just a little mistaken here. Uh, this one wasn't born here. That one wasn't born here, Lord. And God says, because it's repeated in this second stanza, this one was born here. And you say, maybe just a bit more firm. <laughs> no, uh, Lord, for, forgive me, but no. Lord, check their passports, okay? Look, check his passport. It says Babylon born. Check this one. This one was born in Phoenicia. This one was born here. But, Lord, it, it can't be. I mean... <laughs> Dig their crazy accents. Look at the way they're dressed, Lord. Clearly, that outfit wasn't purchased in one of our fashion design shops here in Jerusalem. And yet God says, this one was born here. And so you scratch your head and you think, what's going on? And then suddenly, you get it. Suddenly, it comes to mind. Yes, this one wasn't born here physically. This one was born there. That one was born way over there. But as they enter into the gates of Jerusalem, headed toward the temple to worship the one true God, God says they are born here in Zion. And so you begin to get the idea that this psalm is speaking about the second birth. They were born physically somewhere else, but as they come to worship the true God, they are born here. So follow with me now, because we're going to take a big leap forward, about 730 years, and we're going to eavesdrop on a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And you remember the story, right? Nicodemus was the religious leader of Israel, and he came to Jesus by night, okay? This was the original Nick at night. And so Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and he said, Lord, no one can do what you do unless God is with him. And Jesus got right to the point. And you remember the passage, you're familiar with it, and by the way, if you want to see a beautiful portrayal of this passage, Watch it on the series called The Chosen. It's done so movingly well. 
And here, Nicodemus says, what one must one do to be saved? And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And what was Nicodemus's response? Lord, how could this be? Right away, his mind went to his passport where he was born physically and said, how could it be that someone can be born again? And Jesus really gave him a zinger, didn't he? He said, uh, Nicodemus, are you the religious leader of Israel and you don't know what it means to be born again? Nicodemus, where did you get your seminary degree from Cracker Jack University? And we, th and we think, perhaps with some sympathy for Nicodemus, where in the Old Testament does it speak about being born again? Well, welcome, Nicodemus, to Psalm 87. Because Jesus was referring to Psalm 87. He maybe designated it just a bit differently. He said to be born again or to be born from above. That was the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament Zion born. Well, Nicodemus didn't get it. But apparently in time he did. Because three years later, we see that Nicodemus was a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just stop for a moment and uh, ask you, what does your passport say? Oh, it says certainly the origin of your home country, but is there any spiritual indication? Oh, it doesn't appear on the passport, but it can be seen by Almighty God. It says Zion born, or born again. You may be a citizen of the United States, but the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 made it very clear that if you know Jesus as your Savior, that your citizenship ultimately is in heaven. And it may not say it on our passport, but it's burned into our heart and protected there by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And now we come to the third and last stanza, and that uh, we see in uh, verse 7. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. And so we see the third stanza can be designated as the rejoicing in Zion. Rejoicing because of our salvation being Zion-born. And here, once again, the writer uses a beautiful image, using the image of a fountain or a spring as a picture of salvation. It's like fresh water flowing day by day, and every morning is new as we enjoy the blessings of God. And literally, this uh, passage ends with springs of joy are in you. No matter what we face during this earthly pilgrimage, and these are 
indeed trying times. Uh, if we're Zion born, if we know Jesus, if we've experienced that being born from above by asking Jesus to come into our life, to be our Savior, to forgive us of our sins, that we have been transferred, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. We are protected by the Holy Spirit who seals us, and we are guarded by that uh, spirit of power. And because of that, we can endure anything during this earthly pilgrimage. And as the writer says here, we can be joyful in that experience. So I hope now Psalm 87 is uh, perhaps understood at least just a lick, a little bit better than it was before. Uh, I trust that um, you might reflect upon some of the study questions, uh, interact with your family, uh, and uh, perhaps make it uh, quiet time, take some of these questions and to read and reread it over, to go back and look at that conversation with uh, Jesus and Nicodemus. And I pray that as a result of it, that there might be that joy that we can have uh, because we belong to him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this psalm which teaches us of the second birth. We thank you, Lord, that the Spirit of God has opened up our hearts as we ask Jesus to be our Savior, convicting us of our sin, convicting us of our need, Lord, to receive him and to be transferred from darkness to light. And because of that, Lord, we are grateful that we could be sealed by the spirit of promise, that we could be protected, Lord, spiritually, even as those ancient uh, city walls physically protected the people in that time, that we could be spiritually uh, protected, sealed by the spirit of God and indwelt by him. Lord, thank you that uh, we know our future. Thank you that when this earthly pilgrimage is over, that uh, we know that our citizenship is in heaven because by the grace of God and by the death of Jesus, our Savior, we are Zion born and that we are declared by God as those who know him. We rejoice in this fact and we thank you for it in Jesus' precious name.